0: gentlemen the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co host, the great Ryan Last.
2: Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Ryan Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, sharing his personal tales, his anecdotes. Today, his injuries. With us each and every week, but without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the Tennessee Stud himself, Mister Ron. Ron, how are you today? I'm great, man. Uh, happy as heck, all,
1: as always to be here, and uh, looking forward to this. Um, this one, we're going to cover a lot of ground in today, and. Uh, We're going to talk about a few things that are a little different than what we have been doing and uh, just look forward to getting it out there to everybody.
2: Another place where you cover a lot of ground is the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 22. It is out right now with The Assassin. That's right. 80 minutes of the Tennessee Stud and the infamous masked assassin. This is some great stuff here. Hear about the early days. Hear about working against Rocca and Perez in the garden hear about the Georgia War, hear about throwing fire in Southeastern, so much, check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. We'll have more information later in the show. But, Ron, today here on this show, where are we going to ride off to?
1: Well, we're going to start into a very volatile period for me in Southeastern wrestling in the fall of 1975. Uh, After recently switching to being a babyface, I would planned upon beginning my babyface run against the Assassin and Rock Hunter. As the booker, almost everything planned for September forward was based upon these two guys and an angle with them. It was critical uh, to make a switch of anyone. When you do make a switch of a babyface to a heel or vice versa, it's always critical that you take advantage of it by pushing that wrestler that you just switched and heavily programming him with the wrestler or wrestlers Uh, that you used to turn him babyface with, uh, in my case. So then on August 30th, 1975 TV, I get badly hurt at the worst possible time, as I described on the last studcast, and it would affect everything I had planned for the fall of 1975. We'll talk about that TV in the card for the following Friday night in Knoxville on September 5th. We're also going to discuss today five shows in September of 1975, uh, briefly, that I promised to work in Jerry Jarrett's Memphis side of the state when I pulled out of Memphis in June of 1975 to support my wife in the archaeological dig. Uh, we're going to put into perspective all the negatives occurring during this time period, including the change in venue in the hardest month of the year with everything else going on in my life at that particular time. Uh, we'll end up today with something positive, the incredible results of the new TV show on WBIR as measured, by oddly enough the annual jerry lewis telethon each labor day uh and this telethon provided proof to me that uh my television program was going to be a success by simply what happened on the first telethon that southeastern wrestling took part in uh so uh if you're ready let's just begin we're going to jump right in brian uh we're going to begin with the bad injury that uh that occurred on the TV of August the 30th, 1975. Uh, we went into great depth on an on the last studcast and how it happened and who was responsible for it. Let's take a few minutes to highlight why this injury was so devastating to me and my new wrestling company. Uh, as I said in the opening here, switching the wrestler from heel to babyface or vice versa, it's one of the biggest events a booker can utilize to boost the territory's business. I'd been a heel for the first time in my career since my arrival in Tennessee in the fall of 1974. I'd been successful in two territories during this time frame, Memphis and my own southeastern wrestling. Switches are very tricky, and they're not always successful. When they fail, it's usually because of just a couple of reasons. It's always the booker who has to take credit for success or blame for failure uh, when they switch a wrestler. Uh, Here are the two reasons why they fail. First is that the angle, sometimes it's not properly figured, and the fans just don't buy it, or they just don't want to see it happen. Uh depending on whether you're switching him from heel to baby face they've got to they've got to have a piece of it they have to have a feel for it, and they have to buy it and believe it uh My switch was done properly. And the company had momentum coming out of it. And You can usually tell right away when you switch somebody, if you don't get a jump in your houses around your territory, you haven't done the right thing for yourself. But this switch I did with Southeastern in the summer of 75, uh, I came out of it with, with, with true momentum. The fans were into me as a babyface, and that's what I wanted, obviously. The second reason a switch doesn't work is something that a booker has absolutely no control over, and that's unexpected injuries to the star you just turned. And uh, that's exactly what happened to me in 1975. And, uh, you know, in order to explain this properly, Brian... I'd, I'd like to take a take a look back uh, in uh, at Dusty Rhodes in Florida in 1974. One of the my, the best turns I ever saw, of a heel to babyface. Uh, Dusty was over as a heel, but his personality and charisma were so huge with fans in Florida that that uh, it he, it made him perfect. Uh, the perfect wrestler to be switched from heel to babyface. He had great heat. But he had that something about him that fans just liked him. They they wanted this to happen. And uh, along comes a new Booker in 1974 there, Bill Watts. And Bill Watts is a smart guy. He realized it. I, I bet you Watts didn't have to watch five matches to make the decision that I need to turn this guy right here. Uh, and I'd done a, a good job of loading up Southeastern with Great Hills. Uh, just uh, I want to kind of compare what I did in 75 to what does, what uh, Watts had done in 74 with Dusty. Uh, I'm not comparing myself to Dusty, but I would like to create this uh, this uh, image of what goes on in the two territories. So uh, I'd done a pretty good job of loading southeastern with some great hills starting in the beginning of the summer of 75. I brought the Assassin in. I brought Hunt, Rock Hunter in. I've got Norville Austin that's just arrived. I'd gotten real heat on the Assassin and Hunter. As Watts had done with Pack Song, Gary Hart, Bobby Duncan, and a bunch of heels that he brought in in 74. The critical difference between my turn and Dusty's turn was the injury to me after the turn occurred. Dusty never missed a single night after his turn. Uh, imagine if you think about it what that instant injury felt like to fans and what would have happened if they could not see their new hero, Dusty, in action because all of a sudden he turns babyface and damn, he's hurt. He's not there at all. So the angle would have been ruined and the record year that Florida wrestling had in 1974 would have never been. It would have been another year that probably they would have done it in, but it certainly wouldn't have been 1974. It wouldn't have happened like it did. Worse still, Dusty's talent as a heel would have been wasted entirely because he would have no longer been available in all likelihood. Uh, Dusty would have disappeared from fire to He's injured. He's hurt. He can't wrestle. You know, are you going to turn him into a manager? What are you going to do with him to make it work? And, uh, you know, you put a lot of thought into these terms, and if something doesn't like this happens, you don't plan on getting hurt. So, uh, a Dusty would have disappeared from Florida Racing. It could have turned into a double blow. Uh, you not only lost a great heel and Dusty, but you didn't get the great baby face you banked on. Uh, so, you know, Dusty in the Florida Territory would have never had those tremendous nights in 74. Dusty would have never become the huge star and uh, been nowhere near being the star that he came after that angle took place. That's just my opinion, but I think there's a lot of a a lot of uh, fact in, the, in what happened to me as being something that really made this difficult for me to take advantage of this turn because I had this injury that happened to me
2: okay well that's what could have happened in florida if dusty got hurt what did happen in knoxville how did it work in knoxville with you getting hurt right away well, that, that
1: I was in the position that after this injury on August 30th, 1975, I never had the chance to really get over as a new baby face. I turned, but I only had about two weeks before this injury happened. Uh, and then this injury hurt me so badly that I really had to disappear. For a couple of months, because I couldn't work at all, uh, I was extremely worried that under these circumstances, I would never be the baby face in my own territory that I needed to be uh, I had spent uh s- seven months close to eight months as a heel, and then I decided to turn myself babyface, and now all of a sudden uh you know i can't I can't be the baby face that I really want to be. So let's discuss that television of August 30th, 1975. And bear in mind that the TV airs before the card that we're about to talk about on September 5th in a new venue of Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium. So once this injury happens to me on TV, that card will have to be changed because I'm not going to be able to wrestle the next Friday night. Uh, This is what I was forced to do because of what had happened on that TV. And I got six days to prepare for it. On September 5th, 75, this is the card that was advertised on the television show of August 30th. Uh, there was a five-team round-robin tournament ordered by the Tennessee Athletic Commission back on August 22nd to find new Tennessee tag champions. That tournament had been won by the Assassin and Rock Hunter, but in such a controversial way that the Athletic Commission got involved again and ordered the new champions to defend against two teams in one night on September 5th. The main event for that night was the Tennessee tag champions, the assassin and rock hunter defending for the first time that night against Sam Bass's Southern tag champions, Kurt Von Steiger and Carl Von Heller. And the winner of that match is going to come back in the last match of the night against Ron Wright and myself to crown new Tennessee tag champions, Robert Fuller, my brother's there against the Australian Dundee, Bill Dundee, Tommy Siegler, and Don Wright against the new team out of California called the Pacific Champions, the Golden Hawks. Sputning Monroe was against Leth Thatcher, and the opening match was scheduled to be Sam Bass versus Boy Brunson. These things are all going to change, basically, because of what's going to happen on the show of the 30th. So uh, here's what happened on the TV show of August 30th. To promote this card for the following Friday night. The opening match was the Southern Tag Champions, Kurt Von Steiger and Carl Von Steiger, managed by Sam Bass versus Rocky Smith and Tommy Gilbert. Good good guy, good, good, baby faces there. Tommy Gilbert, pretty good star out of uh, the the Nashville and the Memphis side of the state. Rocky Smith was the old intern who lived up there in Johnson City. It was a great way to open the TV with new tag champions. Their belts were displayed uh, on TV uh, in the main event the following Friday, uh, wrestling for a shot at their second set of belts. Now they got an opportunity here. They already are the Southern Tag Champions, and they're going to have a chance the following Friday. If they win there, they are going to be the ta- the Tennessee Tag Champions also. There was also two great workers against them, as I said, Tommy Gilbert and Rocky Smith. The German team defeated them, did the first interview of the show with Les at the set. Sam Bass did a great interview, bragging about how happy his team was to be in this double challenge event for the Tennessee Tag Championship. It gave them the golden opportunity to win a second tag title, which he brought that point out, while holding the present Southern tag titles. Uh, Bass, he went far enough, he got all excited toward the end, and he predicted by next Saturday that I will be the manager of one of the top ten tag teams in the world by the time next Saturday rolls around. And, uh, you know, that's a great little opening segment and a nice way to end it. My ill-fated TV match was second on the show. I faced off against Frank Morrell. And as I explained last week in the last Studcast, I was going to do a move I had only done once in my career against Buddy Colt in Miami the night in 1973 I won the Florida championship. I should have brought morell into the studio earlier in the day to get in the ring and actually show him this bit of a complicated move that I wanted to do for a finish in the match. But hindsight is 20 like they say. I did my best to show him the move in the dressing room, uh, sadly to say, uh, where we could not actually go down on the mat. So I really didn't give him, have the opportunity to show him exactly how to do it. And uh, when it came down time to do the finish, he not only dropped me on my head in a vulnerable position, but then he fell on top of me with all his weight. Uh, I knew instantly I was hurt bad, but I was professional enough to hide the injury. I beat him and and to leave the ring as if nothing had happened to me. I was in such pain. I can't even recall what I used to pin him. I mean, I left there just really knowing that, man, you're messed up big time. And uh, lucky to get to the dressing room without people realizing that he had hurt me.
2: And what happens when you get to the dressing room?
1: Well, when I get to the dressing room, I, yeah, I'm selling it. I mean, I don't sell it out there. I don't, uh, not at all on TV. I, I jump around, I raise my hand, everything is cool. But as soon as I get behind that wall and in that dressing room, I'm I'm on my knees. I'm like, wow, man, I'm messed up here. And, uh, you know, so I had no idea what all it was. But, you know, when you're hot like that and you've just had a match, you don't really realize how significant your injuries are sometimes. You're hurt a lot worse than you think you are. And when you think you're hurt and you're hot like that, you are hurt. And uh, and this is a bad experience for me. It's my first big-time injury. So Ron Wright and I were scheduled for the next interview, and I went out with him. And I was in a great deal of pain when I went out there, and I told him to do the talking, a lot of the talking. Uh, luckily, I was out there with Ron Wright. <laughs> And he knew I was hurt, and he was the perfect guy to carry the interview, obviously. I spent that long two minutes trying not to throw up during the interview, much less say much. Uh, Ron covered the fact that we had been bitter enemies since my arrival in Tennessee. And although we weren't friends now, he thought I was one of the best new wrestlers on earth. I think he said something similar to that, you know, that I am one of the absolute best young guys he's ever seen. And he thought we were going to make an unbeatable team. The crowd loved the interview. Uh, I rushed back behind that studio wall again and uh, threw up in the floor. Uh, pain was just really getting me at this point. Uh, and I couldn't leave during my own TV show. I own the company. I, I'm the guy that, that's handling the, the format and handling the show from upstairs. So I go on up in the control room and I sit there in a great deal of pain and I help to get things done for the rest of the program. I had to go to work, basically. I I know I'm hurting, but I've got to go upstairs now and I gotta finish this. So I, I knew beyond a shadow of doubt I was hurt, and and I was hurt bad, but I had to finish it. So uh so then uh the personality profile comes up. It's the new Southeastern TV champion, Tommy Sigler. He had just regained the title on the show before. He and Les sat down with the huge T V trophy between them And they watched his big championship win over Rock Hunter from that last television show. Then Tommy told Les he intended to defend his TV championship the next Saturday. He added that he wanted to be known as a defending champion, and he planned to wrestle for the TV title at least once a month, which that's kind of unheard of. Uh, but I thought it was a good idea. It made sense. Uh, you know, people want to, if you've got a title, why aren't you going to defend it? And uh, because it's a TV title, it just helps with the audience. This profile accomplished a lot. It showcased the new champion as as well as promoted the next TV show where he would be defending it. And it was the perfect audience builder for the next show. If you did enough of that, you were sure to grow your critical TV audience. Uh, I thought it was important that television is not meant to be. I think a lot of promoters around the world just use their televisions because I got a TV and I got to get it done. But they didn't utilize it to build toward the next TV show, and when you can do that, that's how you start to build your ratings When you build your ratings, you build your town, when you build your town, it goes back and rebuilds your ratings it's just a it's a growing process, and uh, you got to have great stuff on t v to be able to get great, big crowds in your buildings. Uh, so Norvell Gostin got his second win on TV in the third match against Tommy Rich. Great match. Uh, Norvell is a consummate pro at this point, and uh, and he made the most of a tremendous young talent to Tommy Rich. I mean, he caught some great spots with Tommy, and Tommy's at this point just really, he's right on the edge of being a uh, main eventer. Uh, they went almost 20 minutes before Austin caught Rich with a beautiful diving headbutt As Rich came off the ropes, it was Norvell's finish. And Tommy did it so well with him. I mean, it looked like those guys' heads collided. Uh, It was really, really beautiful. Uh, Robert Fuller, Tommy Sigler, and Don Wright were in the third interview segment. Uh, Robert talked about his upcoming match with the Australian superstar, Bill Dundee. Tommy and Don Wright discussed their match with the Pacific Tag Champions, the Golden Hawks, and they came from Jarrett's side of the state. Uh, Jerry had brought those guys in, and uh, he was nice enough to let me use them some. Last TV match was the Tennessee Tag Champions, the Assassin and Rock Hunter versus Eddie Marlin and Dennis Hall. Two good workers there as well. The Assassin and Hunter made short work of these two, and couldn't wait to get to the last interview segment of the show. They pounced on the Tennessee Athletic Commission's decision to force them to defend their championships, uh, basically against two teams in one night. They accused the commissioners, which I didn't mind because you know we uh, wrestlers didn't care much for athletic commissions. So I kind of let them have a little leeway. And they accused the commissioners of being biased against them. They threatened to leave the state. If they continued to be bullied by the Athletic Commission and that got a roar from the studio crowd (laughs) they were like go on get out of here (laughs) you know so the stage was set for the following Friday night but now with my injury I had to figure out how badly I was hurt I'm I'm upstairs it's been a great show but I I don't know how bad I'm hurt And, and then and then what am I gonna do with next Friday night's card as if that wasn't enough for me to worry about. I question the size of the crowd that's going to be attending there because it's that first week. We're going to be out of Chilohawee Park. We're going to be in Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium instead of our normal home. and uh, And just how how much is uh, that fair that's in there in the chiari park instead of us how much is that fair in itself going to hurt us and hurt the crowd the following friday night well, there's a lot of things going on my going on my head for a young guy who owns a wrestling company that's headed into a bad time of the year and he's got a lot of things to 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 negatives happening all of a sudden
2: yeah but all things considered it's remarkable where you are because beyond you beyond you Getting hurt right when you turn babyface, which is just catastrophic. Think of how many guys you lost quickly. Dutch Mantell, John Foley, uh Danny Hodge, obviously, Dale Lewis, uh, Ricky Gibson. There were so many guys you built up and they were gone quickly. And here you are, you're the one long standing guy since you bought the territory that was new. You know, obviously Ron Wright and guys like that were already there. You build up to the babyface turn, and now, boom, you're taken out of commission. It is remarkable. How many of these big losses the guys you were pushing you suffered in pretty fast order and you were doing as well as you were?
1: Well, you know, I was I was managing to uh to dig myself out of a hole and I was left, like you say. There's a lot of great talent you just mentioned. You could add Jimmy Golden to that. He just recently left at That's this right. time too. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, we're talking about a lot of good guys, heels and baby faces, that came and went pretty darn quickly. It's hard to build a territory without having consistency you've got to have those heels there for a while once they get over that's when they start to make you money but they don't get over for a while takes a while for that to happen once you get them over you want to keep them as long as you can because that's when they're going to produce dollars in the box office Uh, so uh, we weren't too bad off you know Uh, and so let's just back up speaking of that change in the venue let's talk about how important it was for all territories that ran their major markets weekly to be in the same building every week. It was the normal way of promoting wrestling around the country and around the world uh, and had been since the 1930s, especially in major cities. By being in the same city every Friday night, as an example, and in the same location in that city every Friday night, fans became regulars at your event and you didn't have to spend a lot of money on advertising because they knew where you were and that you were going to be there. Uh, And I don't think people really realize that, but that was a key to being able to operate and make money is because you were there every Friday night. You didn't have to say, here, here's my card. Those fans came. They enjoyed it. They were ready to come the next Friday night. So let's just use my grandfather Roy's Tennessee territory as a further example of this. Beginning in the 1930s, Roy had realized that wrestling fans were a different breed. Uh, They loved their sports. And became even bigger fans after they attended matches for a while. You'd get them to the to the match and they would enjoy it and they would come back and the more they came back, the more they got into this wrestler, or the more they hated that wrestler. It just started to stimulate the growth of your company. Once they had their favorites and they hate or their hated heels, they were going to come back every week long before television wrestling was available or had any impact at all on wrestling. You had to do it without TV. So Roy's Tennessee territory encompassed at one time 12 states in the south in the 1930s. His focus, he not ran he didn't run all of those states, the entire states, but he was running in 12 different states in the south. His focus was on the state of Tennessee where he ran the largest four cities of Memphis, Nashville, Knoxville and Chattanooga every week in the same building 52 weeks a year if that building was available. He ran smaller cities in other surrounding states, but they never ran on weekly basis. Just, just every once in a while, he would run a town, some other state. But uh, he really focused on those four major cities in Tennessee at that point. Once he established his wrestlers in these major markets, he was able to keep out competitors by having his recognizable wrestlers there for his fans to see them and support them every week. Competitors had very little chance of getting their wrestlers over and recognizable, since most cities only had one big building, and he was renting it 52 weeks a year. So, I mean, obviously he's got them locked out, and they, you know they can't say, "Well, I want to buy. I want to rent it for three times, and then 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 lose their their main person that the building has, the main money they're getting from somebody's renting it to 52 times." So by renting 52 w- weeks a year no building would be willing to rent another company that was not willing to commit to that number of events a year. So when he got to expand into other states, he got ready for it, he would simply add major cities in those states to his once-a-week schedule. Birmingham, he had these. He had Memphis, Nashville, uh, Chattanooga, and Knoxville going every Friday, and when he got ready... He's in these other markets. He he ran Birmingham. He added Birmingham and Alabama. He added Louisville in the state of Kentucky. He added Little Rock in Arkansas. He added Jackson, Mississippi in the state of Mississippi, New Orleans in Louisiana, and so on through all these states he was operating in. So once this was in place, all he needed to do was add enough wrestlers to cover all these cities that's running every week. So that's why his wrestlers totaled about eight to ten in the 1930s. You didn't have as many guys on the card. Guys had to work the two out of three fall matches. You didn't have to have as many wrestlers. That changed a little bit in the 40s. He had to move from up from about uh, from eight to ten in the territory in the 30s to 20 to 30 in the latter part of the 40s after the war, and then uh, in the 50s he he went from about uh, 30 to 40 to uh, 50 to 70 wrestlers in the fifties. I mean, he was, he was running a major, major operation, maybe the biggest in America at that time. So, uh, the cities he ran each week, uh, the more cities he ran each week, the more wrestlers he needed to cover the matches. It's a pretty simple equation. It made money for him. It worked for him. It kept his competition at bay. And, uh, You know, I think he was a pretty smart guy by setting up his business in that fashion.
2: But I'm sure even though he had those buildings locked down every now and then, he must have had to change buildings and run somewhere else for one reason or another. Everybody did.
1: You're right. I mean, you don't get 52 weeks in any building in America, I don't think, uh, no matter how good a customer you are. Uh, So, yeah, there were times when he'd have to switch buildings. And when he did, uh, when he changed buildings, Uh, for whatever reason he had to. Uh, He expected it to hurt the gate. He knew it was going to hurt his house, but he had no choice. Uh, The building wasn't available. He couldn't get it, so he had to do what he had to do. But he still kept that night. That was the secret here. It was the night and the same building. And if you kept the night, you at least they'll find you. They will try to find you, and they managed probably to find him, but not all of them knew. And there's probably a lot of fans went to the old building on many occasions on the night wrestling supposed to be there and it wasn't there and they might not have known where to go. That's where your television came in later on and it made all the difference in the world about promoting. It changed pretty much everything. So that was kind of me in the first week of September, 1975 in my first year with Southeastern. Uh, I'd been, I I was in had been had to change buildings basically. I changed venue, and it hurt. No matter how you tried to prepare, huge cards or or not, it just was not the regular schedule the territories were built on. I'd prepared as well as possible for the move from Chilhowee Park, Knoxville, to the Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium, for three Fridays in a row in September of 1975, but I had no way of knowing. Uh, to begin this time frame that I was going to get hurt in the last week of August. When you add my injury, the fact that I just turned babyface and was now the most popular babyface in the territory to the fact that we are changing arenas, Uh, the once in a year fair is in town and top that with the fact that September is traditionally the worst month in wrestling, you have the perfect disaster in the works. I mean, it was, it was like everything was crashing for me as a young guy. And, uh, and Brian, we've talked about how important losing momentum can be when you've got, when we've struggled to get it. Uh, We were struggling in that uh, fall of 74 and on into the winter of 75. And, and uh you know how well how well we had done in the first eight months uh at keeping up the minimum was was wonderful you mentioned it a minute ago you we had great success but but now we had about hit a wall with all these negative things i just pointed out so uh, how do you, how do i deal with all this i guess is a good question that's what i'm thinking as a young man i've got a i've got a horrible collar front, collarbone injury uh i have i've got all this stuff facing me and uh i'm i'm young and i'm doing my best but i'm about to question whether i'm going to be able to deal with it or not
2: well we will find out how you deal with it when we return in a moment with the results from September 5th, 1975, but first, a word about one of the central figures in Southeastern in September of 1975, Super Studcast number 22, part 1, out today with The assassin.
0: Something new for the next Super Studcast. Super Studcast number 22, part one, now available, features a star of the sport that is presently the heel star in the regular Studcast during the 1975 time frame at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. This three-hour Super cast focuses on one of the most mysterious and dangerous masked wrestlers ever. The mere sight of his bear-like size and strength in an entirely black outfit with the yellow and black mask horrified fans around the world. Jody Hamilton would go on to tag with Tom Renesto, becoming one of the greatest tag teams ever, the Assassins. The stud brings to life as only he can another legendary friend of more than 50 years and one of the most feared and respected wrestlers of all time. At tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Saddle up for this unique ride into old school history with Jody Hamilton, the Assassin.
2: There you hear it, Super Studcast number 22, part one with the infamous Assassin, Here today, 80 minutes of the Tennessee Stud and the Assassin talking about wrestling history, the history they shared together. These two guys have known each other now for 50 years. There's so much Georgia talk, so much talk about the heat a heel used to be able to get, plus hear about Antonina Rocca and so much more today at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. We'll have more later in the show, but Ron, let's get back to the story here. You have a broken collarbone, and we're getting ready for a night of wrestling in Knoxville at a different location than normal on September 5th,
1: 1975. That's correct, and uh, I've had six days to assess my injury from the TV show six days earlier. Uh, Obviously, to me at this point, I have a severe collarbone or clavicle, as the doctors describe it, injury. I'd never been hurt in that area of my body, but I found it to be extremely painful and constantly aching over this first six days. Six days. It, it it aches, to be honest with you, over the first 40 days. I mean, it just never goes away, it seems like. What bothered me most was the fact that you could not find any position to get comfortable, uh, and sleeping was impossible. You could not lay on your left side. You could not lay on your right side. You couldn't lay on your back, and you certainly couldn't lay on your stomach. So, you know, it was just a terrible injury to have, Uh, and uh, I'd never experienced that before. Uh, I knew it was bad, but I had managed to win the TV title, the TV match in which I got injured, and I left the ring with no one aware I was hurt. That fact left me time to decide how I'm going to deal with this and who I can put the blame on for the injury. I mean, I don't want to get uh, Frank Morrell over. He, Hey, he broke Ron, Ron Fuller's collarbone. You know, he's he's messed him up big time. Frank Morell's not going to draw me money. So luckily enough, I worked my way out of that match. I win that match. I leave the ring. Nobody knows I'm injured. So I've got six days here to figure out how I'm going to take care of this. Uh, so, The fact uh, that six days is really a handy deal for me. Obviously, it's a terrible timing for this injury, but I had to make the most out of it to maintain as much momentum as possible for my wrestling company. I knew enough about collarbone injuries to know there was not very much doctors could do to help you with a collarbone injury. I knew it was going to be almost impossible for me to continue to wrestle with it, especially the next few weeks, and I knew that would likely... Uh, be the order from a doctor, <laughs> and they they love to tell you anyway. Having been to many many of them for injuries, uh you need to do this or you need to do that uh don't wrestle for two weeks, don't wrestle for two months, whatever it may be. They just uh they 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 don't uh they cut you no slack and every injury, I don't care how, how light it is, uh you work through. I had a bad knees for years. Uh, I would go to the same guy and he would he would draw blood out of my knee every every three days. And every time he would do it he would finish and he'd go, Ron, no wrestling for two weeks. I'd say, Yes sir, doc. And two days later, I'd be back in there and he'd be drawing it out again. No wrestling for two weeks. Uh, you know, so you, you're you a wrestler. You had to do what you had to do. So I stayed at home some uh, during this course of this uh, this six-day period, uh, as much as I possibly could. Uh, I only attended one event. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. But uh, it kept thinking about what I what I could accomplish the following Friday night, even though there was no way I could work. Okay, so I was scheduled a team with Ron Wright in this three-team one-night tournament for the Tennessee Tag Championship, which was held by the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Now, this three-team tournament was set to open the night's events, uh, withdrawing uh, from a hat the name of the first team to get the first match of the night against the Tennessee Tag Champs, the Assassin and Rock Hunter. So basically, Rock Hunter and the Assassin have to beat both me and Ron Wright and the German team of Kurt Von Steiger and Kurt Von and Carl Von Heller managed by Sam Bass. They have to beat us both to be to maintain that Tennessee Tag Championship. If one of the the other two teams my team or the German team win, they're going to be the tag champions. So it was a most unusual setup for a tournament. To remain the champions, assassin them, they're going to have to beat two teams in the same night. That's why they bitched so badly on the TV program about how the athletic mission didn't not like them and wants them out of the state. So, uh, you know, it was a it was a different type of deal. I liked doing that type of stuff with my cards. I didn't want to run just the same. Oh, it's just a good standard card, and here it is. Uh, I wanted to do something different quite often, and this is one of those good occasions in which I was able to figure out something that worked. So, uh, so at bell time. 8.30 at night on Friday night, September 5th, all three teams came down to the ring. At the beginning of night, they rang the bell to start the matches. All three teams got in the ring together. Uh, I was dressed out and appeared ready with my partner, Ron Wright. I- I'm not capable of wrestling, but the fans don't know that. They don't know that I'm hurt. But uh, I- I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm in the ring and I'm with Ron Wright. Uh, uh, and, uh, one team we got in the ring at this point, you've got uh, two heel teams. One of those heel teams has a manager and the other heel team is the assassin and rock hunter. So, uh, so we won a coin toss. Uh, there was a coin toss to see which of the two teams picked their names out of a hat. Whoever picked the name out of the hat, they wrestled second, not first. Okay. So, so, uh There was a toss of the coin. Ron Wright tossed the coin. I let Ron Wright do everything. I was barely able to stand up in the ring, much less do anything. So Ron Wright flips the coin, uh, and then he wins the coin toss. So he reaches in. He gets the name and the hat that's going to be the second team to wrestle against the Assassin and Rock Hunter during the course of the night. And uh, when he passes that, Name to the announcer before the announcer ever has a chance to even call out the name of who's going to be wrestling in this first match against those two all hell broke loose in the ring the assassin hunter attacked right and me and uh and the uh, and then the german team and sam bass pulled ron right off into one corner and uh and the assassin hunter threw me out of the ring and onto the dirt we're in the baseball field. Uh, the ring is basically around home plate and, uh, the baselines are all dirt, obviously. And they threw me out of the ring and onto the dirt, uh, and out of the ring, they came after me. Now I'd suffered for six days and it was time for me to go to the hospital. Okay. I had a legitimate injury. I wanted the emergency room people to find it. Not only that, but I wanted to have a busted eye that needed stitches to go along with that collarbone injury. I wanted to look beat up. I wanted them to say, damn, look at this guy. He's a wrestler. So, uh, you know, uh, and so, so they threw me out. They, they found me in the dirt, but, uh, uh, so I was determined that when I got to the hospital, I, those doctors and nurses and hospital support people, they're going to believe that wrestling's real before I leave there. And uh, I gave Rock Hunter the first shot, at busting me a hard way, uh, to bust my eye. I'd never been hard weighed at this point. Uh, my father, who was an expert, <laughs> and he truly was at hard ways, he always told me when I was when I started in the business and a few years before, that that uh, you, in order to bust somebody hard way, you could not feel sorry for them at all. Uh, if you really wanted to bust them open, you had to hit them as hard as you could. You know, and uh, he said the more times you hit them and don't bust them, the less likely you'll be able to bust them because their face begins to swell. <laughs> Makes sense. You know, I mean, big shot above the eye, below the eye, uh, anywhere in the face. The blood's going to start flowing in there and you're going to get a swelling. Once that swells, then there's no bone underneath it that you can connect your fist to. And there's not going to be a cut that point so hunter didn't bust me the first time he hit me uh, and he had never done it before and i think he felt sorry for me is the reason that he didn't hit me hard enough and i immediately told him to hit me again so he hit me with a shot you know uh, another one and then he screamed <laughs> i saw he hurt his hand so you know then i turned to the assassin and i said hit me you know and uh Boy, he gave me a shot. I tell you, man, he rung my bell. He he almost knocked me out, and uh, uh, it, but it didn't bleed. He hadn't cut me. So this was the only part of what I needed to happen this uh, during this. melee. uh, this was just part of what I really wanted to happen. Uh, the first stage is I wanted the bus to die. I didn't get the busted eye, but I definitely got my eye blacked and my face really swollen big time. I couldn't allow myself to be knocked unconscious before the assassin and hunter did the real damage to me. And uh, so what happens in this is they must have figured that that. They figured that out that, you know, that it's not going to be able to bust me. They didn't want to hit me anymore, basically. And they grabbed me and uh, one on each side. And they ran me from about 10 feet away from the ring and slammed me into the steel ring post with my right collarbone that was already injured. Uh, And I told them that's what i it's got to be the right collarbone and everything that was happening in this opening to this night's event and all this stuff going on in the ring and what's happening on the outside of the ring is being recorded for TV the following day. So I wanted this to look real. And I hit that ring post harder than I'd ever hit a ring post before. I almost passed out immediately. I hit it so hard. The pain was just unimaginable. Uh, the assassin and hunter and the German team and manager went back to the dressing room. Ron Wright, who had been taken taking it from the other team and they beaten him pretty good finally found me and i was face first on home plate under the ring post where they had drove my collarbone into uh my brother robert came down to the ring he's there that night but he arrives at the ring about the time that ron's trying to get me out uh they can't get me out uh I'm I'm selling the the collarbone. I mean, obviously, I've been hurting for a week now, and so now I can, for the first time in six days, I can cry. You know, and then I, was, I was ready to do a little whining too. So, they brought a stretcher down. They put me on the stretcher, and they stretched me out of Bill Meyer Baseball Stadium and took me back to the dressing room. Hundreds of fans followed the the people that were carrying me on the stretcher. And by the time I got to the dressing room, my eye was already black and and swollen. It was not exactly what I intended, but the black eye and the swollen face certainly didn't scream fake. You know, and that was my whole thought process here. I want to go to the hospital. I've got to go to the hospital. I want to find out how bad I'm hurt, but I don't want them being able to look at me and go, oh, that rousing's had a bunch of phony stuff, right? So... uh. I, I've got the black eye. I've got the swollen face. I've I've got a legitimate collarbone problem. And uh, so the ambulance is called. And uh, about 10 minutes later, everyone at the stadium hears the arrival of the ambulance. They come in with the you know, sirens blaring. And uh, again, hundreds of the fans poured out from the inside of the stadium while there's a match going on in there just to see me be taken out to the ambulance. And when they rolled me out of the dressing room with my wrestling boots and my tights still on, I didn't take any of my stuff off. There was a line of fans on both sides, uh, all the way out to the ambulance. Uh, I'd done all I could do that night uh, to put the heat on the assassin and Rock Hunter. And the best I could do at this point was hope that what happened in the next couple of months is going to be worth what I'd gone through in that last 20 minutes.
2: Hey, Ron, I just want to clarify uh, something you said earlier. So. The six days that you're home in between when you get hurt and the show, and of course I'm sure a lot of downtime after this show, were you still living with your wife or had you already moved out and gotten your own apartment? Were you returning home from this injury to like an empty apartment by yourself? Well, that would have been even worse for me. It's pretty
1: close to that point, but it's not quite there yet. Okay. And, um, and uh, you know, but we're still there together. Uh, she's able to help me some. Uh, and I would have been really hard pressed to deal with a lot of the stuff I was going to have to if she hadn't have been there, but uh yes, she's still there at this point in time so uh so I, when I leave there that night, there's this card scheduled. And uh, and what happens to me early in the night there is going to change just about every match on that entire card. So Sputnik Monroe, who was set to be taking on just Les Thatcher, ends up taking Ron ba- Sam Bass's place in the first match. Uh, and he beats DeVoy Brunson. My brother Robert took Tommy Siegler's place in the second match because Rob's going to move into another match and uh and in this second match Rob this first match for Rob he partners with Don Wright and they win by DQ over the Pacific Tag Champions the Ho- the Golden Hawks. The third match was the winner of the hat draw at the opening of the night Von Steiger and Von Heller and managed by Sam Bass against the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Obviously the Assassin and Rock Hunter win that match. The following day I was told by my good friend, Sam Bass, who called me by telephone. Uh, it was, he told me on the phone, and I was really pleased to hear this. He said, Ron, he goes, it was the first time I have ever managed a heel team that got cheered. He said, when we went to the ring to wrestle the assassin and hunter, he said, the stadium stood up for us. And he goes, he, I couldn't believe it. He said, I'd never been in that situation before. He said, I knew the thing had got over. I could tell it had got over big time. So I was really obviously really happy to hear that because I'd been through quite a bit. So the following day after the conversation, which was really nice, it kind of told me uh, that the heat went where I wanted it to go. It it definitely went to the assassin and rock hunter. and, uh, And then the... In the finals, Les Thatcher uh, got changed uh, into a match with Sputnik Munro. Uh, he actually beat Sputnik Munro in his match. Tommy Siegler took Robert's place in the fifth match against the Australian Bill Dundee, and Siegler won that match. And then in the last match of the night, my brother comes back to take my place with Ron Wright against the Assassin and Rock Hunter for the Tennessee Tag Championship.
2: What about the crowd, Ron? How did it do? I mean, here you are once again a theme throughout this episode, a venue that you're not accustomed to running in. How did it do?
1: Well, it, as I said in the past couple of studcasts, I was real worried about it. Uh, very, very worried about it. We've been averaging about 3,500 each night that we were outside in the amphitheater for the summer. If we had to go inside, we couldn't get that many people in the small building, so it was less. But uh, we average around 3,500 for the summer. On this first of three nights in the baseball park, we drew about 2,500 people. Uh and you know i had done my homework concerning the attendance of this baseball stadium for the, even for their minor league team you know and they only average about 1500 people a game uh for their own t- baseball team so i i was fairly uh pleased with that uh, i certainly wasn't elated but at the same time i had no reason to expect to do any better than 2500 you know so uh we had we had fallen back We lost some momentum, but considering all the negatives we were facing, I wouldn't allow myself to be disappointed. Uh, You know, the old saying, Brian, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And uh, it's one of those times in which uh, it was time for me to, to get tough and get it going.
2: So if you were happy, was the ballpark happy? I mean, does anyone there say anything to you like, hey, you know, we know that you usually run the other building, but if you'd like to run more here, we'd love to have you here. We did great on concessions. Anything from the actual ballpark? Well,
1: you know, oddly enough, I, didn't, I did not do business with those entities. I had less take care of a lot of that because I did not want them to know, anyone to know that I owned the company. So when we had to move, I said, Les, can you go to these people and and set us up these dates? Uh, I had Les do just about everything that would have required a promoter to do. That way, I could stay totally in the background, and I managed to do that for four years spectacularly until the War of 79. And uh, the boys that uh, were running against me at that point decided they wanted to out me and they wanted everybody to know who the guy was that had been running it all those years. But uh, yeah, Les, Les took care of a lot of things for me because it didn't make sense for me to be recognized as the owner and then being one of the guys that are resting on every cart. The gross house was about 7500 Total payoff was about twenty-one hundred. The bottom boys, DeVoy Brunson, the two Golden Hawks, uh, Don Wright, Sam Bass, and the Riff all got about eighty bucks. We're down in, in number. I mean, uh, the payoff is down, obviously, because the crowd's a little down. Spudding and Les Thatcher got a hundred each. Ron Wright, Steiger, and Heller got about a hundred and fifty each, and then Robert the Assassin and Rock Hunter, who all three worked twice got 250 each because they had worked twice. So to finish the night of September 5th, 1975, I'd like to take us back to my ambulance ride. Okay, so it was my first ambulance ride in Knoxville, but it was definitely not going to be my last. Uh, (laughs) I didn't know that at the point, but uh, yeah, it's just my first ambulance ride. Uh, I had visited a hospital in Knoxville already, I got sewn up after Ron Wright hit me with his chisel back in the spring of 75. So they had seen me in emergency room, but uh, this time I arrived in an ambulance. My wife uh, had my referee, Mac, gather my clothes and give them to her outside the dressing room door before the ambulance arrived at the baseball stadium because she's going to follow that ambulance to the hospital they take me to. So what I had done at the stadium uh, uh, for the fans, uh, I had done for the fans to make them the witness, to give them the witness to see me getting hurt, and to believe that I got hurt. Uh, I was continuing to sell my business as a shoot to the hospital people. Now, I went to that hospital. I wanted them to be talking. Uh, you know, I knew the fans in the stadium were going to be talking, but I wanted to. I wanted to make create fans out of people that work in a hospital. I figure if I could do that, I can make it happen anywhere. So when the when they stopped the ambulance at the emergency room entrance, I paid particular attentions to the hospital employees. The entire time I was in there, as I was being moved around from different rooms to different rooms, x-ray rooms, all those rooms, uh, I was in my wrestling gear. I had a black eye a swollen face and, and, and I wasn't even selling any of that. (laughs) I was holding my collarbone, you know? And uh, so as they moved me from place to place and uh, cleaned the dirt from my, from the off my face, from the baseball field where I'd been face first in the dirt, uh, I saw these medical people that I'm sure probably never thought wrestling was real. I saw them looking at each other like, God, this guy's hurt. Jesus. You know, so it was it I knew that it was. I, it was happening. It, I would I was getting it done by the way I'd done it. And and uh I, and once the once I saw those medical people that never thought wrestling were real looking at each other, I, I figured, man, you know, the you probably look pretty nasty. And, and I probably did it. <laughs> I was all dirty. You can imagine. I mean, I had dirt all over me. I got on a pair of wrestling trunks and some wrestling shoes on. Uh, my face is all dirty, and, and then it's uh, rusted and sw- it's swollen up. And, you know, so everywhere they took me, uh, it was, I got these strange looking expressions on people's faces. And when the results of the x rays came back and a doctor came, and there were several others that came in there with him, I think they wanted to see, hey, there's a wrestler back there. And, and I think he's really hurt. You know, and they, so the doc comes in to give me the news and I was already expecting bad news, but then he explained to me the SC joint and the sternum and that your right collar bone where it connects to your SC joint in the middle of your chest has been driven out of that socket and into the body cavity and... Oh, geez, I mean, uh, the longer he talked, the worse I I felt. I was like, my gosh, man, I've been feeling good considering I've been hurt that bad. Uh, So there was concern. There was concern, and their concern was evident because my injuries were evident. The last thing said to me as I hobbled away from the hospital that night uh, was a couple, I heard a couple of employees, uh, and they followed me to the door. And they remarked to me on the way out, almost as if apologizing to me. And and I'll never forget what they said. They looked at me, and one of them said, we always thought it was fake. (laughs) I, dog, Brian, I just, I I lit up. I I lit up. (laughs) I was like, my. God, man, if I can do it here, you know, I'm going to turn this sucker around. I'm going to take Knoxville from being a Ron Wright chisel town to a Ron Fuller wrestling capital, right? So I really felt I was on my way, man. So it was really a, and you know, and a a little bit different way to finish up here today, Brian. I want to finish today with something positive. Uh, probably the most important thing I had accomplished so far in my first years as an owner of a wrestling company was moving my TV show to the best television station in the market. Now I knew that there was a lot of other, a lot of new fans out there watching. Just judging from the recognition I was getting on the streets of Knoxville when I, the first six months I was there. Hardly anybody recognized me. When we went on WBIR, all of a sudden people are saying, hey, you're that wrestler. Hey, I know who you are. You know, so things are happening because of this new television station. Uh, so uh, two days after I was injured on TV, there was an annual event on Labor Day, September 1st, 1975. It was the famous for older fans and older listeners out there, the famous Jerry Lewis muscular dystrophy telethon. It was a staple every Labor Day of every CBS affiliate station in America. Everybody carried it, and they carried that show for 24 hours in that day. The Monday prior to my injury, I received a call from WBIR's general manager he asked me if I would like to bring some of my wrestlers on the following Monday to take donations on the phone for the Jerry Lewis Telethon. I I never turned down an opportunity to help with these type of events, and I don't know how many listeners out there uh, may know this, but neither did any wrestler I ever asked to do this with me. I mean, wrestlers are great people. They got big hearts, and, uh, you know, they want to help. And I never had anybody ever turn me down for this. So uh, we showed up about 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Monday, September 1st, Labor Day, 1975. And uh, we go into the studio, and it's set up with rows of tables and phones lined up on each of those tables, about three rows of tables, and people waiting to answer those phones for donations. It was me. It was my brother, Rob. It was Ron and Don Wright. It was Tommy Siegler. It was Les Thatcher. It was the boy Brunson. It was Rocky Smith. And I had one heel that just insisted on doing it, and I could not tell him no because of who he was, and that was Sputnik Monroe. Uh, We waited patiently. Uh, in the back there uh, for them to be ready to change out people. You usually were on there for about an hour and you answered the phones. We got there about the middle of a session of the people right before us. And in that 30 minutes or more that we sat there and watched, it didn't seem like the phones rang hardly at all. Uh, so we when we sat down and we were introduced by the local talent of the tv station they had a segment about every 15 minutes and the local people came on they introduced all of us then the camera picked us up and everything right Uh and instantly i mean while they're introducing us the phone started to ring it was like a, amazing and uh Uh, We just, uh, in the next hour, while we were there on those phones, we raised more money in that hour than they had raised in the 10 previous hours combined. I mean, it was unbelievable. The people in the station were like, wow, you guys are stars. The GM of the station uh, called me again. The day after the telethon, he was just absolutely amazed at what had happened in that hour. He invited me to bring my wrestlers every year, as long as we wrestled on his station, to do that telethon. I was as blown away as he was by the response. In the coming years, no one, and I mean no one, ever got a better response on that station for that telethon than Southeastern Wrestling. And it became... One of the favorite things my wrestlers love to get involved in. They fought to get to go and do that telethon every Labor Day. You know, right then, Brian, after all this that we talked about and all this I've been through and all of this hard stuff, the trips to the hospital, all of it, you know, uh, I knew right then that Southeastern Wrestling, wasn't. We, we were not only going to just survive, but we're going to go on to be one of the best local programs in the history of that city. And that's exactly what happened in Knoxville.
2: Well, Ron, that's a real positive note to end this week's Studcast. We want to remind everyone that you can become friends with the Tennessee Stud on Facebook. The page, Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud. Of course, the Stud is also on Twitter, at... Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcasts. You can hear me on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. And of course, we mentioned it earlier Super Studcast number 22, part one, is out today with The Assassin. We ended on a positive note, not necessarily a positive man. The assassin some call them evil some have called them devious form your own opinion today tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99 get in the door it's the best deal in wrestling and truly it is a fun edition of the super studcast check it out today but Ron where are we going to go next week right here on the studcast
1: well, we're going to talk about Southeastern matches in the early part of September, 1975, of which I'm not going to be a part. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to, I left out today. I didn't get to it. I mentioned earlier in the show, we we're going to talk about the uh, places I was going to be working. I'm going to have to work six times during this two month period that I'm very injured. And, uh, they're going to be in the city of Memphis and in Louisville. I'm going to go and get in the ring and I'm going to wrestle with this collarbone problem. Uh, and uh, what a, well, I'm going to just talk about how difficult that is to be able to go out there, to have to go out there and do that. Uh, we're going to review some of the talent arriving in the fall of 75. And uh, we're just going to continue on with this. We're going to bring Southeastern, when I think that we're about to die in September, we're going to be back in that Coliseum
2: in November. So we're, we're going to do some spectacular things. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week.
0: Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.